Welcome to the Good Book Club Podcast, where we make all of our book club meetings and bonus events available for listeners to enjoy. Today, our podcast will feature our The Good Book Club meeting and discussion of Who Wrote the Bible by Richard E. Friedman. This was one of the Good Book Club's very first discussions, and what a book to begin with. Richard Friedman's book is a fascinating, intellectual, yet highly readable analysis and investigation into the authorship of the Old Testament. It delves deeply into the history of the Bible in an easily accessible way we could all understand. We hope you find this discussion as thought-provoking and interesting as we did. This book club bonus event was originally held on November 8, 2020. Did anyone else have that? Did it challenge anyone else's faith in God or faith in, in other things or give them a different perspective? Because it, I, I had a much better opinion of the Old Testament after I read the doc- documentary Hypothesis. Yeah, uh, same with I, me. Yeah, I understood it so much better. Uh, once you knew who was writing it and why, you start saying, oh, they, you know, they weren't just off having, you know, you, you'd say, how, how did this guy go in and sleep with his dad's concubine? What, what's that all about? What is this happening? And then when you realize that they're just trying to discredit the older brothers down to Judah so that Judah looked like he had the birthright, and the other side is trying to discredit the Judah and him having the, I think he slept with his daughter-in-law or something like that, and they're trying to discredit him. And it's really everyone just trying to discredit everybody <laughs> so to keep in power and to show their power base. And it became... It really became a political drama almost. It was really, to me, very fascinating as I read into it. It's a real that shame was... we don't have 12 sources instead of just four. That would be interesting. And, and, and I should point out that the documentary hypothesis of the, and, and the, what we read is just one version of the documentary hypothesis. Uh, it is a hypothesis. I think it's pretty evident. Uh, maybe someone here would, would disagree, but to me it was very evident that it was not written by Moses. It was definitely written by different sources. I think, I think all Bible scholars almost agree with that, except for the ones at BYU, that it was written by various sources. They, they do argue about whether J is older and E is older, whether P was written before the exile or after the exile. So there are different models out there. And, you know, you got to be open to change and say, well, he might not be right here. He might be wrong there. I thought there were some arguments he made that were stronger than others. We struggled with what was the, he had that whole chapter on the tent, um, the tent of meeting and that it was placed inside the, the temple and that the temple housed the tent of the tabernacle. Um, we weren't sure where that was going. We had that discussion last night was what what was his point with that? I don't know if anyone saw you know what that was or not but uh to me it was to me probably the most fascinating story the one that i always had the hardest time with in the uh in the old testament was um the golden calf story i i never could get my hands around why would aaron who just you know he threw his staff down and turned into a snake and ate the you know he's there the whole time he's god's right you know he's moses's right hand man and then he's building a golden calf and the story never made sense to me. And then he's not punished for it. Everybody else gets punished, but he gets made, his sons become the priests. And it's like, what is going on here? That didn't make sense to me. But once I read how that story came about, it really fascinated me when I started saying, wow, this is interesting that the, you know, they had calves in the Northern kingdom and they had 
chair booms in the southern kingdom to represent and once you understood that it just the story just came to life i don't did did anyone else what what were your thoughts on that story on the golden calf incident i thought the calf was a symbol of the canaanite god el um in one of richard uh, Friedman's lectures I watched, he said that the Levites were trying to transform El into Yahweh. So the golden half calf had to go. Yeah, he, he definitely, El, the, the bull was definitely a, a symbol of El, which, uh, and it sounded like to me that, that uh, Jeroboam, or yeah, Jeroboam, the northern king, was trying to offset the fact that the temple was in the southern kingdom. He had to have his version and he kind of wanted to to get the Canaanite there was a large Canaanite population as well as an Israelite population and to combine his people he kind of used the symbol of El and used that to make a temple you know by putting them in Dan and in Bethel he put those two as the, showing the throne he existed across the entire kingdom and uh and so he didn't have a temple building but he was trying to say my entire kingdom is the temple Anyone can worship anywhere in my kingdom. You don't have to go to the temple. Bruce. Yeah, I just, you know, uh, pulled out a, a quote that I, I highlighted. Uh, in order to give such laws claim of authority and thus give it authority, this writer wanted to claim that this was the Torah that God gave to Moses at Mount Sinai. In short, another case of pious fraud. And he mentions that pious fraud is strong language to use about a part of the Bible, but pious softens the impact of the fraud, but only slightly. So it's it's people writing to to kind of further their view, their power, and stuff. And you know, I see that in in the modern Mormon Church. You know, Dale, you got. Yeah, I, I think there are a lot of parallels between what the, the writers were doing when they're putting the, the Bible together. I, I really enjoyed, uh, I've really enjoyed looking into the documentary Hypothesis, uh, although I, I wasn't able to complete this one. It got into some weeds. And, um, uh, the uh, uh, Even the things that Joseph Smith was doing, he was trying to pull from ancient uh, sources and uh, we... It seems like we, as people, we we like to go to older sources to give legitimacy to whatever power we might have, and it, it seems like the uh, the different writers of the Bible were uh, trying to legitimize the power that their their side had uh, compared to the other side, and uh, writing these uh, these origin stories, I think, is uh, something that that lends uh, credibility and authority and, and whatever, at least that's the, uh, the appearance that it, that it gives. Uh, and, uh, I, I had a thought just uh, uh, earlier that uh, even, even today, there are a lot of stories that, that we tell that we know are stories like um, DC comics or Marvel comics, uh, a lot of the, the movies and whatnot, we, we still like to go back and, and give origin stories for for these individuals. Uh, I, I think it's part of uh, what we do as as people, as storytellers. Uh, and in some ways, it turns into a, a political document to lend credibility and authority to whatever power 
uh, we may or may not have. I agree. And kind of going back to what Bruce said, um, <clears throat> at first he kept using that pious fraud phrase, but right towards the end of the book, he said, you know, it wasn't really a pious fraud because he, like the, Deuter uh, the, the person who wrote Deuteronomy, he said that the, the law code was, was an older code that they had. And it was almost like they had these bones that they were trying to put meat on. And I think sometimes we have to step back and look and put ourselves back in that time because there were no, the Bible was the first history book. There was no history up till that time. So nobody really knew how to do it or what they were doing. They were, they had oral traditions. They were trying to get them written down. They were trying to understand the world they lived in. They were fighting, they were struggling for power and, th and this being from a certain family is, is very ancient ancient in the ancient world that was a big thing which which family you came from you know whether you were roman or greek did you come from a certain family and that gave you certain you know credibility by the fact that you came from that family so by writing these things down and trying to justify their claims on things you know that was a very human thing to do back in that time so I think sometimes we want to say, oh, they wrote it as a, as a complete fraud, when that may not have been the case. It's, it's that they were, for the first time, writing things down and, and making books. Uh, I see Brian and Bruce. Bruce, I saw your hand up first, and Brian. I, I was just going to say, you know, this is my own kind of view of things. You know, like if, if you say you're a prophet and you want to start having sex with more women, you do Section 132. And say God told me I had to have sex with all these women, you know. And uh, you know, it it like if you're the priests and you're saying, you know, this is who's who can be the priests, whether that's the Levites or the descendants of Aaron, you know, and stuff. It it seems like a bit of manipulation, and we can see that that manipulation more in our own lives. Um, yeah. How can you get better than that? God told me to do yeah. it. So. Yeah. It's, I don't argue with that. Yeah. God told me to have sex with this woman. No yeah. My grandpa used to always tell his daughters when people would say that, he'd say, tell God to tell me that then. <laughs> yeah. Can you say that again? I, I didn't hear the. My grandfather used to always tell his daughters if somebody comes up to you and says that, because I'm actually from a fundamentalist. So when someone comes up to you and says that, oh. you just say, well, tell God that to tell me that instead of you. Oh, okay. <laughs> very valid point. That's very good. Yeah. Did Brian have a comment? I think Brian did. I, I did. But uh, just to piggyback on what Mitchell was saying for a moment before I go into my comment, I always thought this is a tangent, but um, with the story of Joseph Smith introducing polygamy and telling several women that an angel with a drawn sword commanded him to do it or he would be struck down. My thought was always like, well, if it was so important, then why couldn't the angel come to the woman too and tell, tell her that she needed to do this? Why did it always have to be from Joseph? But um, the uh, apologists um, tell stories of the women say, being convinced. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right, they like to tell those stories. They don't like to tell the stories of the women that weren't convinced. Yes. <laughs> I agree. Um, what I was going to say, I was wondering um, if anyone else, as they read through this Friedman book, um, I kind of found myself 
feeling like the well was poisoned a little bit for me, um, it seemed like Friedman was attached to several hypotheses that he wanted to hold on to despite maybe more modern ev evidence to the contrary. I know he's also written a book on the Exodus where he kind of holds the Exodus as a, as a real thing despite kind of most scholars that don't have a, a political or historical reason to hold to that hypothesis kind of see the Exodus as a, you know, just as a narrative rather than as an archeological fact. Seems to hold on to that, uh, that hypothesis. He also held on to other things. And I don't, I'm certainly no expert on this area, but one thing that kind of struck me is he, he seemed to hold the, a lot of the history in the Bible as, as real history, like the combined kingdom of uh, Judah and Israel. Uh, that's something that most scholars don't see as a real thing. Archaeology has looked at the city of Jerusalem at the time of King David, and it really was a small city-state at that time. There was no walls around it yet. Um, there's really no evidence that there ever was a combined kingdom of Judah and Israel. Um, most scholars today see that as a narrative being developed later after Assyria conquered the northern kingdom, and that was a real historical event. And uh, Israel came south to Judah, which was a real historical event. Um, the, that narrative of a combined kingdom in the past was a narrative that was written, uh, most scholars believe, to combine the, the kind of a fuller, richer history to help these two kingdoms become more united and see themselves like we were once a united kingdom and kind of can be combined now. Things like that. And Friedman seems to not want to go where the archaeology suggests we should go, he kind of seems to want to hold to some of his his hypotheses that there really was a combined kingdom, that there really was an exodus, even though he he admits it was probably a smaller exodus. But even that is is debatable. Um, and I really liked a lot of the things he has. He had some really strong arguments, really thought provoking. But for me, um, just knowing that he seems to be holding to some of these hypotheses that really probably aren't validated by more modern uh, archaeological like historical that seemed to poison the well for me a little bit like I found myself being skeptical of some of the things he had to say just because um, knowing kind of his stance on some of these other things I wondered if anyone else in encountered that or, or felt that way at all or if that was just me for me a little bit that was the confusion I had about the story with the tabernacle and the temple because I felt like that was really um, I guess, promoting this really strong belief, you know, I'm trying to justify how this could all happen. And then I thought, why is this in here? Because the whole time I felt like he was trying to convince me that, you know, none of this is how we learned it to be. And then here's a story that he's like, but, but I can justify how this happened. So I was a little confused by that too, or it did make me question it a little bit. Yeah, myself. I felt the same way. He was pushing the, hey, I figured out that the tents in the, in the temple and this is how it was. And, and so he was kind of more, pushing just his belief that he'd figured that out. Uh, Cause I, that, that I felt was like the weakest, the weakest point. And, and I do agree with you. There's a lot of different people who, and as I said, uh, some people put different people in different orders, you know, where P is and, and different things. And, and I think no matter who writes a book, you're going to have some of, you know, they're going to be pre possessed to, that, to, to, to do a certain way or, or to have certain things that they believe in. He is Jewish. And that's why when I read the David Bakavoy, it was kind of interesting because he wrote it from more of a, of a Mormon perspective. And it's funny because he kept arguing that I still believe the Book of Mormon is scripture. I believe the Doctrine and Covenants are, and the Pearl of Great Price are scripture, just as I believe the Old Testament scripture. And I was going, 
how does he believe that? How does he say that when he's left everything? And, and his argument was, well, it's as much scripture. The Book of Mormon is as much scripture as the Old Testament because it was written by people who wanted to try to make a spiritual, the people read for spiritual guidance. And it's none of it's really written by who it, they say it is, but we use it and we follow it and we believe in it. Therefore, it's scripture. And that's the that's the angle he was taking. So he had no problem saying the church is still um, that, that the, the, the Book of Mormon is true. Uh, he, would, he wouldn't say it was true. He would say that it's scripture. And I think that goes back to Mitchell's question, because he did come back and he started teaching. He came back and, of course, <laughs> they put him to work as a seminary teacher in Grantsville, Utah, way out in the far. The guy has a Ph.D. and can read, you know, all these different languages. And that's where they put him. And it just became too tough over time. And now he's the minister of prisons in U in Utah. So the prisoners have this PhD guy, <laughs> way more uh, than, than anybody at BYU or anything has uh, to, to teach them the scriptures. So I uh, thought what you said, Brian, is exactly right. <laughs> different people see it different ways and, and hold on to different things. And I, I, I was the same way. I kind of said, this one I think is a little weaker than this argument. Like I thought the Ezra argument was pretty strong that Ezra was the redactor. You know, it showed up with him. That's the first place it showed up. You know, there was no Torah, and then all of a sudden Ezra comes. He's known as the lawgiver. I could, I said, ah, that makes sense. I mean, if it's not Ezra, I don't think we'd ever be able to put a name to it because it had to have been someone exiled that we don't know about. But I, some of those things were strong. But I thought the point was very strong that, you know, when when certain authors always used the set, you know, that they they only used tent of the meeting was only used by one writer. Uh, temple was never mentioned by one writer, but it was mentioned by the J or the P writer. Uh, the, the different styles became so apparent there was no way that was coincidence. You know, it was clear that clearly there's multiple authorships. Um, and, and that to me was the most important thing of the documentary hypothesis was it, it's definitely multiple authors. Whether we know exactly who those authors are or not didn't, didn't become that important to me. Um, as the fact that there's different authorships. That, right. That's what became important to me. Yeah, I, I just kind of, as I was reading it, I was thinking, okay, the first book we went over was Free Will by Sam Harris. The kind of the basic thing that I took away from it is that our concept of free will as we were taught growing up isn't exactly, you know, where we're completely in control of everything that we choose to do. And then the second book, Sapiens, where the narrative of how the world works, that we're, you know, you have to believe that the world is about 6,000 years old. You have to believe the flood. You, as Mormons, you have to leave, believe the literal Tower of Babel because of the Jaredites and, and stuff like that. And this kind of just adds another kind of little piece saying, okay, the, the Old Testament isn't quite what we were taught to believe. And so, you know, I'm just seeing these three books as going like, okay, what I was taught to, to believe growing up doesn't quite seem to be accurate. Still trying to figure out what is accurate, but uh, right. the narrative doesn't seem to be very accurate. Are you saying that our book club is sort of a nail in the coffin? <laughs> book after book after book? <laughs> 
who knows where we'll end up at the end, right? So, I, I, well, I had that same observation though, Bruce. I think you're absolutely right. I think I think our book list, you know, because it was a, a compendium of of um, people's suggestions, you know, and you know, coming from the Mormon progressive Mormon ex Mormon communities, kind of led us to some of these books because, you know, the example, you know. It, documentary hypothesis was discouraged to be studied by BYU scholars, um, you know, and you know a different explanation of free will. It goes against you know Mormon beliefs. An ex um, evolution goes against Mormon beliefs. So it just this is kind of where you know this third book. I'm just going like, yeah, at least what I believe I was taught doesn't seem to me to be accurate. I think, I think it's changed the lens in which I see the world. I grew up and my lens was God. God says this. Okay, this confuses me, but it's God. So I follow God. And now I, I don't know what my lens is, but this book kind of told me that the lens is self-interest motivation, uh, looking at what people are saying and looking for the motivation and how it helps them. It's kind of cynical, but the author didn't feel cynical. Um, but it might be a little more accurate. Um, look at us, we're losing our innocence. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. <laughs> very well said, very well said. I felt the very same way, very good. Mm -hmm. I actually um, found this book to be liberating because a year before I read it, we were down at Arches National Park and they were going into great detail as to how these arches formed over millions of years. And I subconsciously rejected that because I, I wasn't allowed to, you know? So when I read this and saw where the Bible actually came from, I was like, oh, that's like, I, I can believe what I want now. Um, but one thing I did notice, and this is because I, I actually read Richard... Friedman's other book called The Bible with Sources Revealed, where he just goes through the whole first five books of Moses with a highlighter and highlights who wrote what. And in process of reading this book, I, it seems that the pre-source really just wanted to stress the idea of absolute obedience. There's um, mm. the story of Moses hitting the rock from the water and the, and the Lord chastises him because he didn't do it exactly as the Lord commanded or something like that. It, it seems to me that there's the Bible was a better book until a peace source got involved. And that's, <laughs> that's the best thing that it liberated me from was this priestly source. That's probably a good nice. question. What is, is the church today more a D, a J, an E, or a, or a P? Oh. Uh, e! <laughs> Dallin Oaks going on about taking the sacrament with your right hand. <laughs> yeah. That's a very P thing to say. White shirt thing. When you, you show pictures, like when I was in high school in the 70s, you know, I wore, you know, shiny Saturday night fever shirts with suits and stuff, <laughs> you know, with loud ties. And, you know, it was so... Do you have so any pictures, Bruce? Do you have any pictures? You know, I, I <laughs> Next time. I do, and they're quite embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> we want to see them. We want to see. Hey, like, Bruce, can you, can you pull up that... Uh, that uh, Picture I sent you that shows what percentage of the of the uh, 
Pentateuch is is Priestley versus okay. B.Y. It's kind of an interesting the colored one graphic. Yeah, like, yeah. This okay. Second, here we go. This breaks it up by chapters, kind of, and you can see that the the blue is what the sec the books and the sections that were written by the P. Uh, the, the J is, is in the red, the E is in the green. There is a little purple there, which is a mixture, I think, of because uh, several chapters, if you cut them up, they're, they're a mix of them. Uh, but you can see that E really didn't play much of a, of a role in Genesis, uh, just later in Genesis, and then through Exodus, and then they kind of almost stop. Uh, and, and J was almost all Genesis, and then didn't show up hardly at all in Exodus and not at all Leviticus and, and rarely in Numbers too. So I just thought this was kind of an interesting visual anyway to see, you know, how it was broken up. And the Priestly is by far the most uh, uh, used source. And, and I would agree with you that, that P is probably as far as obedience in the church, that, that has a heavy influence on today's church. But I think our view of God very much follows more E and J as in being a human God that we interface with and not so much a strict God like he was in P and that we could actually, you know, talk to God, whereas P said, no, you have to go through the priests uh, to, to do it. So uh, I think, I think all the authors, the different ways kind of gave you, I think the church is kind of incorporated as, as not just our church. I think all Christianity is kind of incorporated a, both of those uh, the different pieces and made, made something that the people who originally wrote these things, probably wouldn't even recognize, uh, you know, if they saw it today. They, that's not the God I believe in. <laughs> that's a completely different God than what we believe in. So you can go ahead and kill that then, Bruce. I had a comment on that. I think I, I made the same observation that our God seems to be more E and J, human, merciful. And then um, we belonged to or still belong to uh, an organization, a church, which seems to be more P, rules for almost no reason. Like you said, white shirts. And I mean, we could go on and on about the strange rules that you find yourself following. And I think eventually that leads a lot of us to the point where we say, what did these rules P have to do with God or our relationship with a, a Jesus or a savior or, or a God at all, which you learn about and you're taught about in the organization with the P rules, you're still taught about the J-E God. So at least for me, and I think other people, you arrive at that. What, why do I have to follow these P rules to have a relationship you know, with a God or a deity. And that causes a little bit of, of discord and perhaps leads you in a direction, I think. I mean, I've heard people say that. Why? What's the point? What does taking the sacrament with my right hand have anything to do with me um, feeling that I have a savior or a, coffee. Yeah, or coffee? Yeah. <laughs> of course, of course, now I've taken it a step further. Um, like the, the, the other day I, I said, I mentioned, I was talking to Melinda and Landon last night and said, had I taken, it was a, it was a quiz. I posted it on Reddit about what kind of, what, what are your religious beliefs? And I thought, you know, had I taken this prior, first of all, prior to reading Sapiens, I would have had a different score. This is why I joke about nail in the coffin. Had I taken that quiz prior to who wrote the Bible, I'm, I don't think I would have gotten 85% atheist like I, I do. But I mean, these are definitely opening my mind to all of these different things. But um, back to my original comment, I think, I think there's, has anyone else felt that juxtaposition of the rules of P in the church? Yeah, and standing in the way, what do they even have to do with getting to know a God, if, if that's what your goal is, to feel connected to a deity? So that was just one of my and, and I think Mitchell had a, Mitchell, 
Yeah, well, one thing, because I'm reading the Old Testament this year for our church, um, and I noticed in the end of Exodus, then God says, if you keep these commandments, you'll be safe from the plagues. And in P, there's a strong focus on cleanliness. And I kind of think, you know, the year 2020 made me think about this, but I think there might have been some sort of a plague back then that the Levites were protected from because they were obsessed with cleanliness. And so they interpreted that as, oh, God must favor us because he didn't kill us like he did these other guys. Something to do with COVID? If you read read Leviticus, there's a strong emphasis on just cleanliness. Cleanliness, yeah. The priests have to be clean. Yeah, yeah, there definitely is. It it brings up the the concept, and I've seen it on Reddit several times, the word of wisdom. If the word of wisdom really wanted to be a health code, it would have just said, wash your hands. Because at the time it came out, uh, surgeons were dealing with dead bodies and then going and delivering babies without washing their hands. And uh, the mothers and the babies died. Nobody had the concept of like germs and stuff like that. If the word of wisdom was something that God wanted to really help the health of the people, he might have just said, wash your hands. So that's. You and know. boil your water. Boil water. Yeah, boil the water, yeah. <laughs> well, I, th- I think Mitchell had a, I think Mitchell had a good question there. Um, and Brian had mentioned it before earlier, too. Um, he, he did write a book. Uh, the same author wrote the book uh, Exodus. And he in there, he makes the argument that the group that really was the Exodus group was the Levites who left, who left, uh, uh, Egypt and and then probably came and that's why they had no territory to begin with and then they were made the priests and given the priests and the priesthood and that's that's kind of how they they combined in with them and and so I, I read Exodus as well I didn't think it was nearly as as uh, well written I guess as as uh, who wrote the Bible uh, but it 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 did I, I've I've heard the same thing as you Brian there's really no archaeological evidence for a for a, and I guess it's hard to argue against a small group leaving because it's almost impossible to prove that from so many thousands of years ago. But I, you're right. He, he takes from the argument that an exodus did happen, whereas many scholars say, no, there was no right. exodus. There's no archaeological evidence of any influx of new peoples at the time yeah. that they were supposed to come in. His, his argument for the exodus really reminded me of what Mormon apologists do for the Book of Mormon. Well, they want to maintain some historicity. They now argue for a small group of Lehites that went into Central America and just um, mixed in with the native population that was already there. It's almost essentially what Friedman's doing. He wants to maintain some sort of exodus. And yeah, you can't, I mean, you can't prove that, but as far as the narrative of a, of a big exodus that had any sort of cultural influence, uh, there's very little evidence of that and, and a lot of evidence against that. Most scholars today think that the Israelites just kind of naturally evolved from the existing Canaanites as they migrated from nomadic society to forming city states and cities and highlands, you know, and they started to form cities and that became the Israelites. They grew out of the Canaanites and then they developed uh, their cultural and religious traditions grew out of that as they, as they settled in from the nomadic society they were before. So. But I think the fact that somebody who wants to believe in the Exodus has to make it go down to such a small group, says a lot about the Exodus and whether what we read is really well exactly what you know and, and for Friedman being being Jewish that's important to him that's an important part of their religious culture is that the Exodus story is is a important identifying, you know identifying characteristic for uh, for the people 
um, me, I have no sense, no attachment to maintain that narrative. And so I, I'm perfectly okay with accepting whatever the archeologic uh, studies, you know, say, like if they said there's good evidence for an exodus, okay, I, I have no problem accepting that. If they say that there's really not evidence for any sort of exodus, then I can accept that too, because I don't have a, a personal motivating reason to try to accept it one way or the other. What, what was your take on the Mushites uh, and possible descendants of Moses? And Moses may not have really been, you know, there's question whether Moses was a real person or not. Was there some guy, Moses, kind of, you know, this could be in the tradition of Rome, Romulus and Remulus. Was there really any people, you know, was there a guy that name? Yeah, they probably didn't suckle a she-wolf, but did somebody exist? What was your... What was your take on the Mushai priest? I thought it was a very interesting. Yeah, place. you know, I actually, I actually thought he had pretty good uh, um, for that line of thought. But um, I also had the thought that there didn't need to be a real Moses person for that line to develop. There just needed to be a group of people that, as part of their cultural tradition, associated themselves as being descended from Moses. Even if Moses wasn't a real person, that tradition could exist, and that group of people could have been a real people that followed their lineage and traced that back to Moses, even if Moses as a little uh, literary, uh, literal character was not a real person, you know, so. I think that's the thing that, that surprised me the most was um, I, Moses is the great lawgiver. Everybody knows Moses. And then you all of a sudden hear that there's this one group that everything they say is to kind of disparaging Moses. They had to say a few good things about him, but here's the, Israelites disparaging Moses and when I started reading that I went yeah he's got a point they there's a group here that doesn't like Moses <laughs> or, or at least lift up Aaron a little bit yeah the line could be a little bit more prominent so did, did anyone else have a thought on that just had a question. yeah I just had a thought is uh, you know, whether Moses existed or not it's like the uh European royal families, you know, tracing their lineage back to biblical figures, therefore back to Adam, and you have Mormons who do their genealogy, and they just will, you know, drop, oh, yeah, we've traced our genealogy back to Adam, and you're just going like, yeah, that's not exactly, you know, accurate. I don't, I don't believe the church and or the church's genealogists buy into that, but it's a it's a, a narrative that gives them legitimacy. And so, you know, you listen to Mormon stories and every person, you know, gives their kind of lineage back to Joseph Smith's time, you know, and, and stuff. Uh, my personal lineage is my, my great grandparents or great, yeah, great grandparents were, you know, nobody pioneers from Denmark and they were stuck off in some podunk town in Southern Colorado and where no one was ever famous and no one ever knew anybody famous. But, you know, to give yourself legitimacy, you've got to say, you know, I'm descendant of Moses, I'm descendant of Aaron. This gives me the authority to tell you what to do. And that's just I, have one of, I have one of those charts that shows that lineage going back to Adam and there's a lot of gaps in it. There's a lot of holes. <laughs> but it, but because mine goes it, all the way. Mine goes back to Adam and Eve. This is, uh, I don't know if you can see that. Yeah. Uh, this, this was on the- You even uh, got the, pictures uh, of Adam and Eve in there. <laughs> I know. And just above them is uh, his Heavenly Father. <laughs> yeah. um, I, also, oh, go ahead. I also took my lineage back to, let's see. Uh, there are a couple other gods that were in my lineage. 
uh, like <laughs> a primordial god. Let's see, <laughs> uh, chaos titan. Um, yeah. Well, wow, you're important. I'm just hoping to find out I'm part Neanderthal. That's what yeah. I really, if I go over, I would like that. Yeah. I have a question to throw out. I've been thinking about um, the lost 12 tribes or the 10 tribes, right? That's something really important in the LDS world. Like my oh, son right recently came home from a mission and that's all they talk about is the gathering of Israel, the tribes, you know, it's such a big deal. So from my reading, I, I started to understand that that doesn't even exist. They're really, I mean, can anybody expand a little on that? Because, I mean, listen to conference, gathering of Israel, gather. I mean, it's very important for the LDS narrative that that be a real thing. Did anybody else have any thoughts or, or maybe read it more clearly than I did that can talk about that? Because my missionary son constantly, 10 tribes, gathering, gathering, gathering. I'd love to be able to gently debunk him, <laughs> maybe a little. Mitchell, looks like Mitchell and Austin both. Mitchell, you're a believer in the yeah, church. I'd love to hear, hear about their, anyone's take on that. Um, if they're a believer in the church, Joseph Smith did clearly teach that the Israelites gathered into the North countries, which is interpreted to be England and Scandinavia and stuff. At least that's the way I was taught. That's why where the early Mormons went. Huh. And with falls. <laughs> I know he's been taught that it was a literal gathering too, that we're literal descendants of a certain tribe. Um, but I was always confused about patriarchal blessings where it can be the tribe of Ephraim and my parents are a different tribe or something. So. Right. But Landon, what is it? I mean, doesn't it say, did I thought I read that there really were no tribes? I mean, like that, that were lost. Well, I, I, I think there were tribes, but one of the things I saw was a lot of the tribes ceased to exist prior to the Assyrian right. uh, Assyrian uh, scattering. So it's like, well, if those tribes didn't exist at that time, how do they exist now? They couldn't have really been scattered. I don't think it was all of them, but there were several small tribes that had, had seemed to disappear by the time the way I was reading right. it. Well, I um, thought I was taught. Well, of course, my dad told me they were under the ice, you know, at one of the poles. <laughs> I've heard that one too. Very, yeah. <laughs> very distinctly thousand, taught that, that they would actually rise up from the ice, you know, and, and, and come out. But, and then later, I think the church developed more of a figurative, you know, it's a gathering. It's not necessarily a bunch of people are going to come back, but yeah, I was fascinated in who wrote the Bible to, to see that, what I'd always believe that these people, a mass exodus to the ice, I guess, <laughs> disappeared. That's not really true, but it's an important narrative to the church. Although maybe- I've heard what Mitchell said, um, that, that they, they went to the England in that area. But then why, when you get a patriarchal blessing, when most of the members have can trace back to England and stuff, are you Ephraim and not one of the lost 10 tribes? That's you know, it, I, that never made sense to me. I, know I was told. Have a tribe. Yeah, that's they right. haven't been assigned a tribe through their patriarchal blessing. Go figure that one out. Boy. I, I was told that. your own. <laughs> right in. It's a right in Canada. Right, right in. <laughs> Mitchell. I, I Spencer. All of the northern tribes are considered the tribe. Didn't hear you. Sorry. I was told that all of the northern tribes are considered to be the tribe of Ephraim, just as all the southern tribes are called Judah. And that's so oh, got you because Ephraim, yeah, they they okay, I can kind of see that. Yeah, Judah was Benjamin too. De Dale, yeah, I think the uh, the early church was really focused on lineage and blood and uh, a lot of things like that. And that narrative that 
that your your blood had something to do with your righteousness uh, was something that was passed down through my family. I've got a, a family history book that's titled Born of Believing Blood. And the, the people who put this together were totally uh, on board with the idea that uh, your ancestors had had this blood in them that led them to believe more in in in, in the gospel in Christ and in Joseph Smith even uh, and you uh, you have this idea that was passed on through through my family uh, my ancestors go back I'm eighth generation whatever uh, five generations back in my family a hundred percent are are Mormons and uh, it's just some of these ideas perpetuated through my family lines yeah. I have one of those too. It's called Upon This Rock. Um, I, what we taught was that Joseph Smith taught that the, um, the way to recognize the house of Israel is the ones who would accept the missionaries into their house because they were going out without purse or script. And so those who accepted the missionaries and took care of them were the blood of Israel. As to how that works when, one, when two brothers, one will accept them and the other one doesn't, I guess it's like a recessive gene or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm from Meridian, Idaho, super, super conservative. And from that area, we've had some mission presidents assigned to Russia. And they come back with stories of the patriarchs giving patriarchal blessings and assigning them to all different tribes. And so we get real excited about uh, the gathering happening. Okay, I, I've just got something I'm going to show on the screen. Um, in my quest to figure out how the world works, um, I um, did my DNA by four different companies. And so according to 23andMe, L at the very top is mitochondrial Eve, and she lived 180,000 years ago. And so that little, um, from L to L3, N to R to H, and then that over into Europe, is you know my descent from uh, Eve and Adam I think lived like 250,000 years ago yeah not at the same time yep <laughs> they, they never met yeah <laughs> Spencer did you did you have your hand up I thought I saw your hand go up it wasn't up sorry oh so, yeah. okay okay <laughs> if they never met how was a eve able to obey him yeah. <laughs> you know i think that may be something new because i don't know in my family i'm not sure my mom was ever obeying my father anyway so that's actually kind of where i wanted to go was the uh was the creation story because i think that's the first you know when you go the creation story to me that was the that was that was what broke my the, the back because to me the whole reason we have the new testament and jesus christ was because of the fall so when i started looking at that in the old testament i said well to, to know of jesus or 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 jesus's role i really need to know did adam and eve really exist and and so as i read this story i started saying well there's clearly two different stories here of adam and eve they're told differently. They're in different orders. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're wrong, but it certainly got me questioning that. And then as I started doing kind of the research that Bruce just showed with the DNA and stuff, I started saying, well, they, they clearly did not live 6,000 years ago. And, and they didn't, that 
the, the DNA shows they weren't at the same time and at the same place. And, and so that, that one really became a, a to, to me, that's why I say it really is a foundational question. The Old Testament really goes to the foundation because the whole reason for the gospel is to overcome the fall. Um, so as I read through the creation stories, uh, I thought it was really cool to see the different views of the creation. One, a very cosmic, the, the, you know, the, there was no water, the sky. They used to believe that water was above us in the sky, and that's why it was blue. That's what the P author thought. And then it crushed through, and the flood was actually the water draining from this protective bubble above us. It was a very cosmic view of, uh, of the flood. And, and, and yet, when you look at the, at the uh, J source, uh, you know, God's right there with them. He's walking in the garden with them. He's very much a part of it. It's a rain. It's not a, it's not an opening of the skies. Uh, did, did anyone else have any views on the flood story or the, uh, the creation story? As yeah, they... Landon. Um, Go ahead, Brian. Landon, also that protective bubble protected people from the UV light. So that's why those ancient prophets could live to 900 <laughs> years. And then after that. the flood, um, the lifespan became much closer to what it is today. So that's a fact. They taught that to me. Uh, it was their blood that changed. <laughs> I learned that too. Absolutely. Uh, you know, what's interesting, just on that same thing about the, um, if you look at Sumerian um, legends, Sumerian writings, early writings of their kings, uh, their kings also lived hundreds and hundreds, you know, centuries long, three, four, five, sometimes seven, eight hundred, nine hundred years, um, which is interesting that there's so many uh, Sumerian influences on the Bible. That, that'd be a whole other topic. But yeah. one of those influences is the lengths of people's lives in the early Old Testament. Sumerian influence from their same traditions. The story of Noah is straight up plagiarized from Sumeria. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, Gilgamesh, and, and if you read that, you very much see the the the, the parallels. Uh, mm -hmm. It sends out the doves, and uh, yeah, it's 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 very similar. Mitchell had his hand up. Well, it's, I, I was I was going to say there was actually a Sumerian king that I read about whose story is almost exactly like Noah's, where the Tigris and the Euphrates overflooded. Yeah, and he just happened to have a boat. Dale, did you have? Yeah, the uh, the story of the flood and the Tower of Babel uh, were were critical junctures in, in my faith journey. Uh, as uh, so, I was struggling with some other things, but then I dug into uh, the stories in in the Book of Mormon and trying to understand how they were incorporated into the Book of Mormon and if um, you know what. Uh, is the uh, is the narrative of the Book of Mormon reliant on these two stories? That uh, are they in the Book of Mormon? Are they taught as facts or is more of a uh, a story? And as I was digging into the narrative of the Book of Mormon, and even in the Doctrine and Covenants and, and Pearl of Great Price, uh, these stories were uh, told as a very literal thing that happened in history, very historical. In fact, the uh, the story of the the Jaredites, uh, the brother of Jared and, and all of them, uh, relies on the the narrative of the Tower of Babel and the uh, confounding of languages and whatnot. So the story that was taught as a very, very literal thing in the Book of Mormon, something that is is shown to be 
not actual history. And that was uh, the, I would say the, uh, the nuking of my shelf. Josh, did your hand go up? Yeah. Um, I was going to say just uh, those issues, um, the historical issues, I guess, were more of an effect on my faith than necessarily the documentary hypothesis specifically. Because whenever I would read about like what's going on in the in this field of like biblical criticism nowadays, it was always kind of like, yeah, the documentary hypothesis was really big, like up until 40 years ago, but then it kind of fell apart and people don't really take it as seriously nowadays. Um, but the, the important things were things like, well, just the idea that the Bible was not, like the books of Moses were not literally written by Moses. Like how, uh, how does it have an account of his death or whatever happened to him? If he wrote it, you know, yeah. um, or the influences of like Gilgamesh or these Sumerian or other uh, ancient Near Eastern influences on the Bible. I mean, that I agree. It was a, a huge thing of like once once you see the parallels between the Noah story and Gilgamesh. Then the, the question is not like it's it, suddenly your your task is so much harder instead of just having faith in something that maybe happened. You just like have this leap of faith like, OK, I'll just believe that there was a Noah and that this thing happened or whatever. Instead, it's like, no, we actually know that basically the same story came from these Sumerian epics. Now we have to explain, like, why is it also in the Bible and why is it different? And is there some magical thing that's somehow different and better about Noah? Like, somehow that's actually true, where Gilgamesh is just an imaginary yeah. thing. Like, that just becomes impossible. Or learning about, like, yeah, the I studied linguistics at BYU. That was my bachelor's degree. And so we would learn about, like, the Tower of Babel and just like how uh, impossible it like how the incompatible that idea of the like fragmenting of the languages was with the actual development of language and then they actually yeah. taught that in BYU. I was just going to ask that they actually taught that. So no, I mean. <laughs> it wasn't like an explicit part of the curriculum because i mean i don't know that that just isn't part of linguistics really yeah but it was like adjacent so in my historical linguistics class I remember somebody doing a presentation on like the linguistics of the tribes of israel taking it all very literally and it was just like clearly bogus like i don't know anyway but just seeing that stuff show up in the Book of Mormon too, that's that absolutely nail in the coffin. It's like the Tower of Babel in the Book of Mormon. Okay, that's hard, hard to get over that. Game over. Game over. Bruce? Yeah, um, I, I found this, you know, 
highlighted this quote, um, since the exile community was hardly likely to believe that the Babylonians were stronger than Yahweh, the answer that was regularly suggested to them was it was their own fault. And further down, one of the logical consequences of monotheism is guilt. And, you know, isn't that kind of one of the central themes of our Mormonism today? Um, it's your fault, you're broken, we have the fix, you do what we say, you pay us money, but like with the, was it Bednar saying you have to have enough faith to not be healed by priesthood blessings? I mean, it's the same thing that it seems like the different writers of the um, uh, first five books of the Bible were each trying to kind of manipulate things into the way they thought things should happen. And it seems to me that the modern Mormon church is doing the same thing. And one of the things that it has to do is convince you that you're broken and that they have the fix and they're the only people that have the fix. What really kind of, um, you know, kind of made me feel a lot better about life in general, you know, being an old gay guy. Um, I'm not broken, you know. I've made a lot of bad choices yeah. in life. You know, I should have gotten out, you know, <laughs> years before I did get out. But, um, you know, that whole concept, you're broken. And I think you see that one of the logical consequences of monotheism is guilt. So it's kind of part of a manipulative uh, structure. At least that's my view of it. Yeah, I just wanted to say that the, I, I guess you could say the, the gospel of Christ or uh, everybody is good enough and his grace is sufficient for all kind of throws a pretty big wrench into that. But the, the church really does focus on uh, I'm not good enough. There's always something else I can do. Uh, and yeah, well, there's, a, there's a lot of guilt. It threw a big wrench in the Jews at the time. That's why they were so keen on getting rid of Jesus. Yeah. When I, what I think is interesting, hi, I'm Tom. I, uh, I think is interesting is that uh, I always think of it this way now. A lot of the things that were taught to us as kids and children, and I'm 55, so uh, a lot of those people who taught that stuff, they're all dead. <laughs> and they taught it on to some of the people that are existing right now, but it, it, it's like, when were we ever going to be allowed to think, to grow, to evolve. And what I see here is we're questioning now the messengers. Yeah, we're questioning the writers. We're questioning where all this came from, which was not what we did when we were 20 going on missions or eight years old when we were baptized. And the church um, is not geared for that because they've been living in an antiquated world taught by other people who are dead now. Yeah. And they haven't been allowed to to evolve so it, there's this just this massive amount of being stuck where the rest some of us are just going like this around it going I, I i feel like the concept of just firing my god is is what i have to do <laughs> to move on and go where where is the god that i do want where i'm still wanting to have a god and i know i'm not addressing the book right now but i think it's just as i listen to these conversations i I'm coming away with these thoughts about we're doing, we're doing this and why have we not been able or enabled to do this 
in a productive, not productive, probably uh, safe way in terms of the church that we could do this so that, you know, you don't have the, the, the shaming or the guilt, Bruce, or whatever, that we're naturally able to be naturally who we are rather than being well, the natural man is an enemy to God. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. And with that, I'll have another, <laughs> have another, <laughs> I think, did, did, uh, did Brian, did you have a, you had your hand up? Yes. Uh, um, what Bruce was saying, um, kind of relating back to the book, we talked about the peace source and the peace source. One of its central themes was centralizing power in Jerusalem and the all sacrifices had to be done at Jerusalem at, at the temple. And what Bruce was saying, that really reminds me of kind of the Mormon church, like everything has to be done through the Mormon church. The church has the authority. You have to be baptized through the church. You have to get the priesthood through the church. You have to go to the temple through the church. And I'm, I'm currently identified as atheist, but for those who don't, for those who still want to have a relationship with the, with the divine or with uh, Jesus Christ, like that mentality that has to be done through the church, I think really hinders people to have their own personal relationship with the divine, to have that personal uh, relationship with their savior, because everything has to be done through the church and the church has the authority. And um, I found this picture too, I wanted to share, because I think it relates. Um, okay, let me, I think I have to allow. Okay, this will just be real quick. You're allowed to screen share now. Okay, so this is a picture I found. Um, from the April 1972 con priesthood conference session is at the top and you can see all the colored shirts. And as the, the church has become more- it yet. Not seen it yet. Oh, you guys aren't seeing it? No. Darn. <laughs> Wait. Did you Here we go. Highlight. Now I can. You have to allow. Yeah, I've, I've allowed it. You, You've allowed you it. Uh, and then share screen. Okay. Let's see. Oh, I don't know why it won't let me. Sorry. Dang it. Can you, you send can email it to Bruce and Bruce can post it. Email it to Bruce it. and he can put it up. Attach it to the chat. Or attach it to the chat. Would that work? Or maybe not. Or instant message it. Messenger it. Um, yeah, I'll send you my email address. Uh, um, let's see. You love graphics. <laughs> it's a cool uh, you... <laughs> no, I want to see it. Let's, let's get it no, up. The graphics are helpful. I found. You know, being able to see some of this. Okay, Brian, I just direct messaged you my email address. Okay. Here, I'm gonna, I'll email it to you here. Uh, while you send that, Dell had a comment. Let's go to Dell, and then we'll come back yeah. to Brian when the when it gets well, there. While you're talking about that, I, I just wanted to say the 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 church does really well if we're. Uh, uh, I don't know if everyone's uh, looked into Fowler's stages of faith. You've probably heard of Fowler's stages of faith. The church does really well with the with stage three. That's where uh, you understand your universe, uh, all your questions are answered. Uh, the church has an answer to every question and you're comfortable with where you are. Um, and I think Tom, what you're talking about is uh, moving from that stage three to stage four and the church is not good at all at first of all, understanding the stage four uh, helping members who are in stage three understand stage four or leaders understand stage four or even uh, stuff after that. Uh, they want to hold on to this, uh, like they're in the in the P, they want to really hold on to this, this narrative that is absolutely true, uh, that works well for 
the people in in the state uh, I I think that the the absolute narrative, the the black and white narrative, works really well for the people who are in the stage three faith. But once you transition to the stage four, it doesn't work. And I oh here we go. Is this it? Oh look at oh, yeah. that! Look at that! Oh. Look at how we've become uh, more pee over the years. <laughs> all those colored shirts at priesthood session and now today you know it's all white we're a little white aren't we i i was in the um i love that I was the picture is worth a thousand words isn't it <laughs> oh, i'm the dudes in the 70s man i'm yes, digging the shirts that. <laughs> and those white i won't let him wear a, a white shirt nope. i will not let nope. him wear a white before i was more out before he was and I would not let him wear white shirts to church. I said, you have to do this. You look horrible in white. You just can't. Well, <laughs> I was trying to put a hand, you know, and I, I had a son sent home from passing the sacrament to go change a shirt. And it just, it just, it was one of my very first, just come on guys. This is not important. So that, I love that. They're picture. chasing us out over white shirts. <laughs> we, we had our, our bishop told my son when we were given, going through the 12 year, you know, the deacon interview, uh, I was not wearing a white shirt and he brought that up specifically. You know, I want you to be wearing a white shirt to my son and I'm sitting there with a colored shirt next to him. Vilified right there is the dad. You're not a good dad because your shirt yep. happens to be a color. I'm, yeah. I'm less faithful. I'm assuming. We now know wow. what to call it. It's, wow. it's P all the way. So JJ. I love that graphic. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, that I appreciate really, it, Brian. Really says J it. JJ. That's excellent. Well, Jay, you're can't hear, any, can't hear any audio. Well, he's fixing that. I, I wore a light colored shirt, 1976 conference. I was in the overflow in the Salt Palace right before my mission as Boyd K. Packer gave the little factory speech. And I hadn't gone through the temple yet. There for the little well, factory speech. My day was so the well. whole back of my shirt was drenched in sweat. <laughs> because I mean that was you know the issue of my life but wait you were there for the little factory talk I was in the overflow of the priesthood meeting in the salt palace the priesthood meeting was in the tabernacle but there you know there were so many people there because my parents used to go all the time this was right before my mission and my sister um, was very sick so my my mother was in Utah taking care of her. So I was there and that, I can remember it was a um, tan striped shirt. And I, you know, I hadn't gone to the temple yet, so I didn't have a t-shirt on under it. And I could just feel the sweat rolling down my back for the little factory speech. So JJ. That's a claim to fame, to hear that in real time. That Why don't we pull that talk up now and watch it? <laughs> Oh no, we can't. We said it. <laughs> oh dear. You, type you type it in, the, in the chat and I'll, I'll read it if you want. No, again, there he's dead. Okay. He's dead. He's That's dead. It. <laughs> I think JJ has something. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're trying to get his audio. Yeah. Yeah, we can't hear him. Dang it. He's sign language. Chat the question or chat the comment. Yeah, Jake. While he's trying to get up there, hey, Camille, we, you joined a little late, but we're also glad that it went so well for you uh, with your family last oh, time. Thank you. 
Great Bring news. Bring us up to date on that. Huh? Bring us up to date. Oh. Well, yeah, I just, we told them over the phone and, and they were really loving about it. I mean, they were sad and they all told me, oh, we're so devastated and we're sad for you. But they're like, we love you and we'll support you. And so they were great. They were great about it. And we just kind of don't talk about it anymore. <laughs> it's just kind of awful. <laughs> That's though. the standard, yep. <laughs> That's <laughs> my experience too. So to <laughs> can I just, Camille, can I just say this in my experience working uh, around a lot of faith crisis folks and groups that I attend, that I find that it's really important as much space as that you are asking for from your family, once you do kind of come out in, in, in that kind of way, that mm -hmm. you allow them to have the space and you will probably find over time, they're gonna find out that it's really okay versus what they may have been taught right. um, mm -hmm. with antiquated learnings and teachings people that are dead that are people that people are dead <laughs> but it's really going to be okay they'll be the knee jerk and maybe you've seen some of that but they're now just going from stage three going to stage four but it's really scary as that development occurs because that's also part of their involvement their journey now is to engage folks that don't completely believe the way that they do and across the whole church it's like now what you know that's that's a huge conversation that needs to be going on rather than always shutting it down because we're preventing ourselves from expanding and growing. So I wish you real I wish you well in that. That's good news. Thank you. <laughs> did, did we get JJ back? He's back. Oh, not talking. Okay, can't hear you. Spencer looks like. Yeah, I guess uh, what some people were talking about earlier. It just made me think about from the societal level where is this all going because. Before, when you moved from stage three to stage four, I think that there was an unwritten rule that if you're in stage four, you don't, you don't tell the people in stage three, right? And I think that the church is still operating in that sphere, but it's impossible now, right? And so the documentary hypothesis, that all of the things that are, the further back we go in time, perplexingly, we actually know more and more now about that stuff. And, and it's just can't be hidden anymore. And so I, I'm wondering what other people think, and I know that this is all just conjecture, I guess, but what other people think about where religion is moving, both the Mormon church and just religion in general about these literal beliefs that have been so tied to these pieces of literature that are very clearly myth-based. And, and yeah, I just, I, I'm not really sure where it's all going and I'm not sure how people can fit in a nuanced perspective without it, without a church pushing for it in a way that is like, that's the forefront of the belief system all of a sudden, right? So how does the church move to all of a sudden have that be the, the main core beliefs is, is not literal anymore. And, I, I, and, and it's also, you can't really create new religions the way that maybe they used to be created over time because uh, everything's open now. So that's an wondering. awesome question. I think Dale raised his hand and then Mitchell next and then anybody else. Yeah, I, th I think religion thrives in the unknown. And there are some things that we know better now than we didn't in the past, like uh, evolution, for instance, or the earth, the, the state of the earth, whether it's flat around. And uh, I think the more that we understand uh, through science and our experiences, uh, the, it's the amazing shrinking doctrine of not only our church, but of all re religion. 
And my guess is there's always going to be uh, at least some, enough unknown that religion will still be able to be viable for a, a large portion of, uh, uh, of who it is we are, uh, of people. And there will always be other things that people will believe in. They'll latch on to uh, comics or a political party is what it is they believe in. alternative to that because i'm seeing this even in parts of my own family and my own church is where everything's moving in a more conspiracy direction um my uncle said in all seriousness that the scholars at smithsonian know the book of mormon is true but they're being paid by the evil conspiring men to say that it's not and he's reaching out to a lot of people with this um and then the alternative to that would just be to focus more on the way you should live your life in terms of just the teachings behind it, I should say. JJ, can unmute yourself. How about now? Yeah. Yep. All righty. Well, Welcome okay. to the party. Welcome to the party. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there was sound. <laughs> Cool. My comment was just a few comments ago. I was just going to make it. We're waiting. I was looking at the white shirts. When I was a missionary, I got really tired of the white shirt. <laughs> the only thing that made you different or unique was your tie. And we got a little crazy with our ties until our mission president kind of told us to tone it down. But um, <laughs> when I got home, I mean, since my mission, I don't think I have ever owned a white shirt. I would never voluntarily do that. And I, I was a guy that went in with maybe stripes or off-white or gray or so. Yeah, it's um, I don't know why they would voluntarily do that. No one's forcing you to do that. There's no standard, no rule. I can understand for the missionaries, but nothing says you have to wear a white shirt, but they do it. OK, uh, JJ, this was part of our, our earlier conversation about the lost 10 tribes stuff that happened in the Middle East. I don't know if everybody knows, uh, JJ is from Kuwait and he's Armenian. So what's your patriarchal blessing? What's your tribe? I am an Ephraimite because I'm a little too white looking and very, you know, <laughs> grew up and raised in a church, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, that was a surprise to a lot of people that I was Ephraim. Now, if I had my patriarchal blessing in the 70s, it probably would have come out a little weird. Um, I think those are Mormon stories episode on that where some people did not get a lineage and other people i've met some a couple of gads i've met a couple of other stuff but they got their patriarchal blessing i got mine in the early 90s and these were people that got it in the 70s and 80s and that's why it was maybe that's why it was different it seems like since the 90s everyone's been an ephraimite it's i mean yeah. not even manasseh it's it's ephraim you know it's uh That'd be a good uh, data project for me to work on, but you know, gotta, gotta keep that blood pure. Yeah, no, we, we were talking about that before you came on, and I kept thinking, oh, I wish JJ would log in because I'd love to ask him what tribe he's from, having grown up in the Middle East from a Middle East family. Yeah, my patriarchal blessing reads very much like a Mormon patriarchal blessing. Um, in fact, at one point, I wrote um, a program that would spit out a generic. <laughs> patriarchal blessing for people it gave a little bit of variety and everything um and i was trying to streamline it where it would give the same person the same one 
Um, it did get pretty close, but um, I'd have to dig it up somewhere, maybe just rewrite it again or something. Um, I thought about putting it on Reddit, but people would get pissed off or that kind of thing. But I, these days, I don't care that much, but maybe I should do it. Well, I mean, that's, you know, the last 10 tribes and stuff like that, you know, was a, was the topic of this book, you know. They yes. Well, I want to move, I want to move to it because uh, we're about an uh, hour and a half in and I want to make sure that we talked about the last issue and then uh, we'll turn it over to Dale, who's going to give us an overview of the next book. Uh, I promised Mitchell I'd hit this. So the last thing I had was kind of a discussion on on how does the documentary hypothesis play into the Book of Mormon and also into the Book of Moses? And, you know, I guess, I guess I'll start with the Book of Mormon. Um, Lehi left Jerusalem right at the time that the Deuter, uh, Jeremiah, who is who he says was the uh, Deuteronomistic uh, uh, historian, uh, or who he pinpoints, but whether it's him or Baruch, or I guess Baruch is who he kind of said was it, but... Um, so what, what Lehi supposedly left right during this time frame? So you might ask yourself, okay, what, what documents did he have access to at the time? He, he would have had, you know, according to, to the charts, he would have had J, he would have had E, he would have had P. E wasn't put together because remember the second part of D wasn't until after uh, the scattering. Uh, and so uh, he took this with him. And I'm just throwing this out as a question. It's just, I, I don't have any answers, but when he left, uh, he's identified as from the tribe of, uh, what tribe Manasseh. is he from? He from? Manasseh. Manasseh, Manasseh which would have made him a Northern. He would have been from the Northern. Uh, so he would have been one of these North, his family would have been one of the Northern ones that went South when the Assyrians came in, but he was not a Levite. So he could not have offered sacrifices. And we are at a point where the centralization of power at the temple was important. And I kind of wonder why when they went back to get the plates or to get the you know, plates of, of Laban, the brass plates, why they came back with, what's the guy's name they came back with that they kidnapped? Zoran. Zoran, yeah. Why didn't they come back with a Levite? who could then do the sacrifices because I don't see how Lehi could have done sacrifices. I don't see how they could have built a temple when there was a, a theory of centralization at this time. And he's from a Northern kingdom. And so do we see any Northern things? You know, we, we've got the Northern uh, E and uh, E and D were kind of Northern. Jeremiah was a Nord, Northern Shiloh priest. Where would Lehi have fit into this at that time? Because he would have been a northerner. He would have been much like Jeremiah, probably, in that he should be very much on the Shiloh side of things. And uh, just wondering if anyone has any thoughts on that. I just have a quick one. Um, what sin do you have in your life that you're questioning this stuff? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think I think of these things at night, you know. <laughs> nightmares more like nightmares there you go well is uh, uh, sorry isn't there a central problem here in that it's something i'd heard of but i'd never seen documentation that the whole story starts in the book of mormon about the reign of zedekiah and the prophets are coming in and warning that 
uh, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed and people are going to be carried off. Well, uh, reading in uh, who wrote the Bible, it tells the history that Zedekiah was put in after that happened. That's exactly correct. So, yeah, kind of pulls the rug out of the Book of Mormon a little bit, I think. Even the Bible says that, doesn't it? Yes, there, there were there were actually three. Can you pull up that timeline, Bruce? Yeah, uh, the colored one or the other? Uh, the, the other one. Okay, yeah, just a second. I will. This is the one I posted on Facebook, so some of you may have seen it, some of you may have not seen it, uh, but it, it kind of shows the timeline between the two kingdoms, and and uh, there were actually three different. Uh, if you look up in the right-hand corner there, where it says three separate departures and three separate returns, those are when uh, those arrows pointing up there, right around 600 BC. That is when the the first Babylonian captivity happened, uh, like in uh, 607, I think was the year that it actually happened. I can't quite read that, but Lehi left in 600, so he left after they'd already had the first captivity when the king had already been taken away. Uh, his son Zedekiah then became he became the king, and Zedekiah was a, was the king at the time in 600 BC. Uh, Zedekiah then got hauled away when he rebelled later, but that was after Lehi supposedly left. But you are in that in that point where Laban and Lemuel don't believe that Jerusalem will be destroyed and won't be taken over the great city, and it's already happened. They've already been deported, and Zedekiah was a puppet king already of the Babylonians. I've always felt that was a huge smoking gun, but whenever I try to explain it to people, it's like you lost me at Zedekiah. Like they just don't yeah. want to, you yeah. can't. Well, that's because we don't know our Old Testament history. And, and that's yeah. where I found this helped so much is I really right. understood the Old Testament history from this. Right, it's so, so crying. To, to answer Luann's question though, the, the Mormon apologetic response to that would be that um, Babylonian came in, they sieged Jerusalem, they took away a lot of the elites, but they didn't destroy Jerusalem. And so we have this period of time where Babylon, Babylon has basically taken over Jerusalem, but they've left it intact. Zedekiah, um, as Landon said, he was put in as a puppet king. Uh, when he rebelled, then the Babylonians came back in and this time completely ransacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. And so the Mormon apologists would say that uh, this is all perfectly historical, that people believed didn't believe that Jerusalem could be destroyed because it hadn't been destroyed yet they still had their temple and that hadn't been destroyed yet and it wasn't until after Lehi left that the Babylonians came back and actually destroyed the city whereas before they just kind of sieged it and taken it over but they'd left it intact okay if Lehi hadn't stole those brass plates from the keeper Laban we wouldn't have had to go through this whole process of writing something afterwards about everything that happened beforehand and if, if Laban, they'd already put it together by then, then we didn't, yeah, we, we didn't need Ezra to put it together because it was already together. Except uh, but, Lehi stole it. So that not, so that well, one, I didn't have it. <laughs> well, one man could, could die rather than a whole nation perish, but where's that nation that didn't perish? I think it perished. Yeah, he lost his head. <laughs> Definitely. So I, I guess the point that I, I'm, uh, that I look at is, you know, we might be able to use this and go back to the Book of Mormon and say, okay, Lehi didn't have the, the Deuteromistic history at that point. Does he ever reference it? And if he does, then that becomes problematic too. And I, I didn't take the time to go through and see if that did or didn't. 
exists, but it, it's certainly a, a thing that we could look at. JJ. Lehi references, well, or Nephi at least, writes out the huge portions of Isaiah in the Book of Mormon. Now, when you look at the timeline, and I'm, this is not mentioned in the book, the Book of Isaiah covers events over a 700-year period. So it could not have been written by Isaiah or right. one man. And huge portions of it were actually written after 600 BC. And those are actually quoted in the Book of Mormon. So that's where, you know, yeah, I, Nephi is quoting things that were never Isaiah. written before or about to be written kind of thing. In fact, there were, there's a 50 year gap in which uh, people feel that they were written 550 BC. Um, scholars like Friedman come up with that, these numbers. I'm not, I don't know their methods. I'm not too technical on that. But it's, that should be one of those red flags that kind of pop up. It's, uh, wait a sec, guys. Another thing is, um, this came out in a, on this uh, video, the Lucy Code. Um, I don't know if anyone's familiar with that. Um, Paul Travis has been writing a book, and one of these days it's going to get published, but people have been waiting for a few years about the influences from um, Joseph Smith's mother on it. But he mentions a Masonic story, one of the Masonic levels, the ninth level in which a person has to go and get the records, but the records are being procured by a specific evil guy. And technically you have to kill this guy, cut off his head, wear his clothing, be disguised as this guy and get the records so that the servants don't recognize you kind of thing. Um, incidentally, it's a Masonic ritual, uh, the ninth level of masonry. I don't know the sources, but he just mentions it in this video and gives a reference. Um, um, it's from a book, Morals and Dogma, by Albert Pike, who, when I looked up the book, apparently he plagiarized half the book from a, a French, Elephas Levi. But, but that's where you have this story that sounds a little too similar, kind of yeah. like, uh, you know, Joseph Smith Sr.'s dream of a tree in the life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's fascinating. Mitchell, did you have a comment? I thought I saw yeah. your hand. So I have a question, because this always bothered me when I would read anti-Mormon literature, is... Um, why is Deuteronomy such a big deal in a world where prophecy exists? Why couldn't Isaiah have written that if he had the power to see the future? I think. Um, uh, I think whole, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, go no, go ahead, JJ. I think the whole point of Isaiah is that for us in in our day, when we read the Book of Isaiah, it sounds it comes off as very Christian, and I think that's what Joseph Smith was trying to do was put a huge Christian part in it. I mean, Isaiah chapter 53, word for word, is in the Book of Mormon. Um, until you bring in a Jewish guy into the church, uh, someone, I can't think of his name, um, one of the September 6th uh, that was excommunicated, and he gives a completely different version of it, so they kick him out of the church and then bring him back in when they realize it was kind of crazy. Um, Gilyadi, um, Avram Gilyadi, I think? Yeah, yeah. yeah. His, his ex-wife's in our ex-Mormon group in L.A. In LA. Okay. And, and, and I think that's the argument the apologist would make is, well, he's a prophet, so he could see it. But I, I think all the Bible uh, scholars look at Deuteronomy and said this is clearly written from somebody inside of Babylon. They can also tell by the versions of Hebrew that it's written in. You know, there's a big difference between English from 1400 and, and, and 1800. And you can kind of look at that. And I think that's one of the methods they use. And I think the real telling one is, is that he named Cyrus by name. And that just seems so unlikely to name Cyrus by name because obviously the Babylonians would have had those scriptures and would have known that a king named Cyrus was going to uh, overthrow them and, and come back and destroy the, 
the uh, uh, would, would destroy his empire. So as soon as Cyrus came to power, he would have gone and killed him because he would have known there's a prophecy that Cyrus is going to free these people. Seems like the and Babylonians. So too perfect. <laughs> seems like the Babylonians wouldn't even care about reading the Jewish scriptures. They would just see it as another legend. Yeah, but you've got them, you, you've got their leaders in your court. They're part of the court, you know, Daniel and those people were supposedly in his court. You would, you would think they would want to be aware that there was of their scriptures and, and their prophecies to avoid exactly that kind of thing, uh, to keep them under control. You know, they'd have experts in that, you would think. So to, to, to use a name 500 years before the person actually existed, the exact name of that person just seems way out of place. Uh, I think that's why they you that they look at it. Yeah, one thing the one thing this book really did with me is it just kind of reshaped the way I even look at scripture. And so when you talk about how anachronism of the Book of Mormon that it presents, it made me not even want to read the Book of Mormon again because I knew I would criticize it the same way. <laughs> um, I still haven't read it since reading this book. That's a really good point. Did you have a comment? Yeah. Yeah, I, I just wanted to say if Lehi or Nephi were able to see the future and write exactly what would have been written in Isaiah, there wouldn't have been a need for them to kill Laban for the brass plates. Yeah. They could have written the whole thing. Um, so that that makes that narrative pretty difficult. Plus, you have Nephi. He says, uh, I, I find that it has the writings of Isaiah, and, and he... Uh, in his storyline copies down in his book the writings of isaiah right so nephi also says it contains the five books of moses which to even yeah. reference the torah as the five books of moses that early is a huge problem because yeah. that was a very late tradition for centuries the jews just had unauthored book of collections and it wasn't until like in the 300 bc when they had greek influence this hellenistic influence that heavily favored authorship and now all of a sudden the rabbis say like well we need to come up with who the author of these books are and that's when they came up with the moses tradition um so to have it to have nephi talking about the five books of moses in 600 bc is another big anachronism it's back then it just would have been authorless books some of the writings of moses but certainly not moses is author of all five books that was a very late tradition yeah yeah, I think they call it Torah of Moses when Ezra came back is the first time. I think they call it the Torah of Moses. Uh, isn't that what he said in this book? Didn't he call it the Torah of Moses or did he just call it the Torah when he came back? The Torah. Um, and I'm not sure where Friedman stands. I just had, um, was curious and I read a few Wikipedia articles, which of course is my source. But um, that that mentions that the Moses author was a, even a later tradition. It wasn't until like the 300 BC when the rabbis, again, were had a heavy... Greek influence and uh, that Greek influence, which favors authorship, where authorship is important, and that wasn't important before then. Then they came up with uh, this tradition of Moses as author. So, well, that 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 kind of is a good segue into the last thing, and that's the Book of Moses, because I went back and I kind of said, okay, um, Friedman did this for the Old Testament, but he doesn't believe in the Book of Moses. Can I do the same thing to the Book of Moses? Can I look for J, E, P, and D because that's supposedly uh, supposed to be a translation of what, of a, well, that's supposed to be a dream that Moses had or whatever. Uh, I kept getting confused as to where in the world did the book of Moses come from in the first place. Um, so I looked it up. Uh, I, I think I'm, I'm using, this is actually the, from the church's website. It says the book of Moses is the Joseph Smith translation. 
I don't know what he was translating from because he didn't have the, the, the original text. It doesn't matter at all. Translation. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Of Genesis so that's 1 the answer 1. to everything. There's no record. There's no actual. My copy. Need that. Yeah. My copy says it's not a translation. It's just inspired notes that he wrote. Inspired. And that's kind of the way they're going now. But this is what the actual LDS church, and I know you, you said you're fundamental, so you might have a different view. It said, as students study this book, they will gain a greater understanding of their identity and purpose as children of God. They will also learn the crucial doctrines of the creation, the fall, and the atonement of Jesus Christ. In addition, they will learn about important events and principles from the ministry of ancient prophets such as Adam, Enoch, Noah, and Moses. Who wrote this book? The book of Moses is the prophet Joseph Smith's inspired translation of selections from the writings of Moses. It contains the words of God which he spake unto Moses. This is in quotes from Moses chapter 1 verse 1 and commanded Moses to record. However, because of wickedness, there we go, back to the because of wickedness, uh, many of the plain precious truths he recorded were obscured or lost and are thus preserved in the book of Genesis as it comes to us. Consequently, the Lord promised to raise up another prophet in the latter day to, to restore Moses's words so they would be had again among the children of men. So that's where the book of Moses came from. So as I looked at the book of Moses, as I went through the book of Moses, the first chapter is is completely a writing actually uh yeah the first chapter is completely a writing about uh this dream and how moses was caught up into the mountain and and so it sounds like joseph smith has seen a vision of moses receiving these receiving these words and in starting in chapter two he starts following exactly the genesis one uh through genesis three and as you start following through there uh, I went and just highlighted all the P passages, and then in blue, I highlighted anything that was different or had been changed. And as I went through, the first thing I found is there definitely was P and J. He, he follows exactly the same. So you've got him calling him God in the one, and you got him calling him uh, Lord God, which in the, in the King James Version, Lord God is the version for uh, Jehovah. God is the version of Elohim. Um, and he follows that exact same, uh, same process. Uh, so as I started looking through there, I said, did Joseph Smith know PED? Did he know the documentary hypothesis? And uh, I don't think he did. It was around, you, you remember, if you 1700s is when they started kind of figuring it out and 1800 work was done on it. Had he heard about it? Did he know about it? I don't think he did because he follows the, the, the pieces, you can see the pieces in there. You can clearly see J, you can clearly see P. And so for him to be having a dream of people who are writing from an op, from a different perspective, hundreds of years later, and yet Joseph has seen this dream of Moses receiving these and writing these, just didn't, didn't sit right with me. Uh, so I started looking at the differences. What did Joseph Smith add to the book of Moses that wasn't in Genesis? And it was kind of interesting to see because although I don't think he knew P, J, E, and D, I think he recognized the doublets. Um, he, he definitely recognized the doublet in the creation because I don't think he could explain why there were two creation stories. And so when you go through it uh, and you start looking at where he added, uh, right where it changes from P to, to J, or yeah, from P to J in, in Genesis, he inserts words and he says, the Lord God created all things of which I've spoken spiritually before they were naturally upon the face of the earth. 
And uh, several of the verses that he adds, he says, the first flesh upon the earth, the first man also, nevertheless, all things were before created, but spiritually they were created and made according to my word. So I think he saw the doublet and he was trying to figure out how to explain that. And he did it by saying um, the first the first story was a spiritual creation and the second story was a physical creation. And that's why they're in different orders and that's why it's in there twice. And I think he recognized the doublets, but he just didn't know. He, he didn't recognize it as two different authors. He saw two different stories and he tried to reconcile the two. That was just, I have no idea if that's correct or not, but it, from the things I highlighted, every time he added, he kept talking about spiritually created, being spiritually created in, in that second, in the J version, uh, but he doesn't really say that in the P version. And the other big thing that he adds really big into those is Satan. Satan is not a belief of the uh, Old Testament. They don't know Satan. They don't understand Satan. But he fills it with everything. Garden of Eden is Satan, and Satan is very real in Moses, but it's not in J, it's not in P, it's not in E, it's not in D. It's clearly a modern insertion of this philosophy of Satan that didn't really exist back in those times. So uh, if you want a fun Sunday activity, sit there and highlight your, you know, that the back of the book, it has where J, E, P, D, color in different colors in your book of Moses. And and start seeing what changed and see that you can see the different versions. He did end, Moses ends before the flood, so I couldn't see what he did with the flood, two different flood stories uh, to see if he, you know, caught on to the doublets in the flood story. But uh, I thought it was kind of interesting to see the changes and what he added to the Old Testament and the new things that he added, this philosophy of Satan. And this is where you find out Cain was black and the different things were all added by Joseph Smith as part of that. A book of Moses. So to me, the documentary hypothesis really undermines the book of Moses because there's no way he saw a vision of Moses in which Moses is writing two different from two different people writing hundreds of years apart. So I thought that was fascinating. But Mitchell, go ahead. I have this book here that highlights it all for you. This is this is actually the first book that I got. And then I read who wrote the Bible after. It's up, upside down. Oh, Bible and sources oh, revealed. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, the Bible with sources revealed. So this this book will just it just colors it differently based on who wrote what. Oh, okay. He already colors it for you. Yeah. Okay. Saves you a lot of time. <laughs> he doesn't do it for the book of Moses, though, I bet. So I think it's interesting that uh, Joseph Smith's answer is spiritual, like spiritual eyes. Every, I mean, you can explain everything away by saying there's a spiritual component, right? I'm, I'm not, not saying what I'm saying. It's my, I'm not seeing what I'm seeing. There's something otherworldly. It's a great answer to everything. I, I do think, you know, you look at it and you say, Joseph Smith was, he was a smart guy. He was not He's a, a he, he had his moments of brilliance and he clearly saw this. He knew the Bible. He, he understood these things. I mean, I couldn't write a book and tell you Zedekiah was the king in 600 BC when I was 20 something years old. Um, so he, he, he had knowledge, no doubt about it. Uh, it it's just, you know, uh, you, you can look at it and take it however any, each person wants to, but it's, it's just another option that you can look at that the documentary hypothesis helps uh, you to look at scripture and look at, look at different things. So that's, so that's comment, JJ. Yeah. J. I was thinking, um, Lately, we've been hearing a lot about Adam Clark and Joseph Smith's access to the works of Adam Clark. So I wonder how much 
um, the book of Moses. Adam takes Clark. Adam Clark. That's a good point. I know that a, a person has gone through the through the Book of Mormon, at least everything, every part where it says Joseph Smith translation, um, where people are thinking, well, how could Joseph Smith have known that? Today, it's very obvious that it was, he had a book by Adam Clark, and um, it seemed like he highlighted everything. Grant Palmer also felt that he uh, read quite a bit of Swedenborg um, at the time. It's just, he hasn't accessed, he hasn't figured out or pinpointed certain books, but um the works of Swedenborg were available in the public libraries or at the time with two Joseph Smith. In particular with Swedenborg, he mentions Aaronic Priesthood and uh, Three Degrees of Glory, um, which should kind of raise some eyebrows with anybody here, I guess, any Mormon at least. Um, that's, a, uh, that's a good point. I didn't think of, did Adam Clark write these sections as opposed to Joseph Smith? That's a, because that's, yeah, that's fairly new that that came out. Uh, so that's a, that's another interesting place you can delve into and look at yeah mitchell is trying to talk i think oh. there were a lot of swedenborgians who joined the church and i think one of them even married joseph smith um yeah i heard that when i started reading this writings of swedenborg i noticed they were very similar to what i was taught but the stuff that isn't really taught by the mormon church like the idea of um that each person has a spouse assigned to them before they were born that's a swedenborgian idea and i think that to me, that seems like more of a family tradition because my ancestors are from Sweden. Mm. And so that's, I can tell there was a lot of that influence, but I never quite figured out what it was. That's fascinating. I'll turn the time over to Dale to introduce the next book. It's a great uh, conversation. Appreciate everybody's insight. And um, uh, oh, wait, Nelson, and I'll give, we, we are looking, Rebecca, I think you're looking for people to, uh, host or, or lead a, a I discussion. I think Tom has volunteered yeah, for one. And... I mean, you, you know, it just means that you kind of, yeah, talk more than I would be talking. So I don't talk all the time. So, <laughs> so no, look I mean, at the before, last... we, before we go over to Dale, I'll just say again, if anybody is new and would like to jump on our Facebook page where we kind of have real-time information and engage. Um, you can send me a friend request on Facebook to Rebecca Biblioteca, that's T-H-E-C-A. And then I'll invite you, it's a private group, totally closed. Um, and you could also just email thegoodbookclub at mail.com if you want instructions on how to do that. So we have a lot of fun on the Facebook page. So Nelson, did you have one more comment as we're leaving? Yeah, and, and this kind of comes from my extra credit. But I think it's yeah, let me just say Nelson is amazing. He not only finished the book in really great time, then on our Facebook page, he's like, wait, I moved to the New Testament. I'm reading more. So yeah, he's our star student today. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know about that. I don't know how much of that I understand. But they talk at one point in the very beginning of this book, he, he says this, uh, with the New Testament, you could probably put the Bible in here as a whole, the old and new, is commonly viewed and treated as a charter document that came into being much like the Constitution of the United States, according to this view, the authors of the New Testament were all present at the beginning of the new religion and collectively wrote all the stuff down. And then he goes through and he says, but the problem with this is, and then he documents where the timeline of the different, the Pauline letters, the uh, Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke. And then he says, there's a part I really like, the next paragraph. To make matters worse for this, for the uh, conventional view, these writings stem from different groups with their own histories, views, attitude, and a mix of peoples. And I think that's where we all get it all comes from, even the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
it comes from the different to people's views or societies and their histories as it's all put together. So, you know, but I think we do oftentimes have people think that, oh no, this was like he says, like the constitution, these people all sat down together and they wrote all this out at one time. And that's the founding basis for Christianity, yeah. the founding basis. <laughs> if you go back there and we just know that that's, that's not the way it came about, however else you might look at it. But that way, we know that just is not the way it happened. That's a great point. And I think maybe we should cover the New Testament, maybe maybe next year. I mean, that's fascinating. It's a natural next choice. So awesome. Okay, Dale, tell us about Educated. That is what we are going to be reading for December. Ah. Hopefully a little easier read since it is, you know, December. Get her to to chime in. Gosh, maybe. Anyway, Dale has volunteered to lead that discussion. He's told me that he and his wife had just read it. So go ahead, Dale, give us a Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, educated, it's by Tara Westover. She is a uh, she grew up in uh, southeastern Idaho. Uh, was uh, her parents were were really uh, orthodox, more so more so than my parents were, um, to the point where uh, her dad felt like the school system was uh, was too liberal, and so she and her uh, her siblings were. Uh, um, were homeschooled. And this book uh, kind of hit close to home for me because I, I actually had a couple of friends growing up whose father took all the kids out of school because he thought the school was uh, too liberal and of the devil. And so he, he had his wife homeschool the kids and then his job was uh, became of the devil. So he quit his job and his wife had to go teach school and teach the kids at home. Anyway, uh, there's, there's some parallels between her story and, uh, some of my friend's stories and even, uh, some of my story as well, uh, coming from a uh, small town, Utah with, uh, with my, my, uh, ancestry going back into the, the 1840s, you know, the, some of the beginnings of the church. So, uh, it's, it's her, uh, her journey of, uh, from where she was in a, a very Orthodox Mormon family uh, to, uh, being educated. And that's kind of the, uh, the, uh, that's the name of the, the book. Um, super, uh, super interesting. Uh, my wife actually, one of her friends told her about it. Um, and my wife read it, uh, told me it was really, really cool. Uh, I don't remember if that was before or after I started going through my faith crisis. Um, but here earlier this year, we decided to read it together. And uh, it was super interesting. Uh, it's one of my uh, wife's favorite books. We'll we'll see if she can join with me uh, when when we go through this. So I've I've gone through faith crisis. She's still an active believing member, and uh, but really really enjoyed this book. And uh, we we found through reading this book that I had a much different upbringing than she did. Uh, mine was much more orthodox, uh, almost along the lines of uh, Tara Westover, and hers was much more nuanced. And it's created, uh, it helped us understand uh, where we we are right now a little better. So uh, it's a little and, it, and apparently, Tara's mother has now written her memoirs. That's not a rebuttal to what Tara did, according to what I found. Uh, but there's so she's written a book out there as well. It looks like it's a self-published book, and you can buy it on Amazon. Uh, uh, Tara's mother has apparently a um, 
uh, business where she does essential oils and other things that uh, has some books about um, um, holistic healing and heal holistic medicine type stuff. Um, so well, depending where I get, and if I get ambitious and want to do a little more extra credit, I might try and read that one too. But, um, but I just found that interesting. And I found this, um, I don't know how many of you had an opportunity to, to watch her, the, uh, what was it, the presidential lectures or whatever it was from Utah, Utah Valley. That used to be Utah Tech, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Back in the days. University. Yeah, I have Back that on our Facebook page. I'll, maybe I'll repost it. Because um, that was an excellent interview. And I was going to just say she's all over YouTube. She's interviewed with Oprah. She did a whole yeah. junket when she did the book. It's really interesting to watch her. She's with Bill Gates. I mean, she went right to the top. She's talking all so these. Just Google her if you, you want know, some extra. Really, I haven't found all that stuff, but, I, uh, but it, was some, it was a comment. It was a very passing comment in, the, um, in that interview that they were doing. Um, that she had mentioned it, and, and Tara didn't really say much about it. She goes, yeah, I, yeah, she's written a book. You know, and that was where she left it. Uh, so that, Educating. Right. So, sounds and like so, a all sort of, but. So I'll have to go see, and I did see some of the um, newspaper articles about the, the, the mother's book, but I didn't know that she had, I hadn't seen anything on the Oprah and any of that other stuff. So, um, but very interesting to me, somebody that finds this whole, you know, being in the world and, and a, um, taking access, you know, that's how you're making your money now to be getting on Oprah and going to Bill Gates, who found Tara's book to be on the best reading list. I just find that kind of interesting. In and yeah, she's, she's done a 180. No, I'm excited to read it. I'm like Dale. I was raised very fundamental Orthodox. I mean, I, we probably have a lot in common. <laughs> so, and then yeah. the month after December is going to be January and that's going to be Jana Reese's the next Mormon, um, her huge study, a, a statistic analysis of just, you know, where people in the church are and what's happening. And, Tom, who's gone to a couple lectures of hers and, and has yeah. some connection to her, is going to lead that one. So we'll talk more about. And so really, if anybody wants to look through the book list and, and just lead a discussion, it just kind of means, you know, talking more than me, like I said. So I'd love it. It'd be great. Yeah. So any more comments? Are we done? Gosh, we've talked for two hours. It just goes like that. I just love it. <laughs> I, I hope that you guys enjoy this as much as I do. I, it's just wonderful. Yes, Bruce. Yeah, our next gathering is December 13th. Uh, 11 o'clock mountain, 10 o'clock okay. Pacific time. Okay. Yes, Brian. Or are you just saluting out? You're, you're, he's just signing off. There we go. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Your head's no I was going to say, um, <laughs> it was Benny Hill. That's right. I was going like, <laughs> no, to say, sorry, I was pretty my eyes from the sun. I was going to say, oh. um, Tara Westover's done a number of uh, podcast interviews. If anyone's interested in finding those, you could just Google, I'm sure, her name and podcast. And you'll find a number of, I know Oprah interviewed her. Um, she was on Mormon Stories. And so you may find those interesting as you read the book this month as well. So. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Well, let's get reading. And please share comments and things on Facebook. I love that. When somebody will write something and we'll all, you know, write back and forth about what we're learning and the insights. I love that during the month, if, if you'd like to. I think that's really fun. So, all right. Well, signing out. Huh? Thank you, everybody. Bye. Have a great rest of your Sunday. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. The Zoom doubles. Yeah, the double wave the for doubles. Zoom. We, gotta we do don't that. do this anywhere else in our, in our yes. working life. We do it here on Zoom. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Bruce. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thanks, Landon. Good job, Landon.